Our text this evening is Judges chapter 8. You can find it on your pew Bible on page 207 and 208. I'll give you a minute to turn there. And then if you would rise for the reading of God's word. We're going to read all of Judges chapter 8 this evening. Hear God's holy word for the people of God. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezar? And God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city and took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth the lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the 
earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because well, they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw it in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in a city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there and he became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father at Ophrah of the Abiasrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray together. We would ask, O Lord, even as an early church father, Thomas Chalmers, would say, would you speak? And may the words of your truth be imparted to our life that we might read, mark, and inwardly digest. And all for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you've been with us, we've been on quite the journey with this Judge Gideon. We are looking at sermon number four. We are finishing up on Gideon this night, and, and I think one thing that might be helpful to you is, as we consider Gideon, I want you to think a slight sport analogy for a moment. When you think of sports, you don't get a win at halftime. You don't get a win because you played hard, tried hard, and in fact, perhaps had a good half. To get a win in sports, you have to win at the end. You must finish well. Unfortunately, tonight we look at Gideon who demonstrates an example of one who did not finish well. There's no halftime victories. You do not get a trophy for having competed well in the first half of your life. And unlike what we have seen in recent judges, that is those before Gideon, we see some very important factors here, even in the very beginning, that something is sadly wrong. You see, the pattern that we're accustomed to is there's been some kind of oppression. There's, there's been some kind of evil. And the people are oppressed and they cry out and God raises up a judge and, well, then there's a defeat of the enemy and perhaps there's rest of the land and the people tend to follow after him. But here tonight, what we See, are two things. Number one is, well, we don't get a short victory speech. We get a long speech of having what just took place about this victory. And not only that, we also watch the people of God fall right back into sin, not after the judge, but in fact, 
during his judgeship. And so what I want us to do is look at three different points or observations to better understand this narrative. Our first is we want to look at a a disappointing victory. And that'll take us through verses one through 17. We'll then look at a, a distancing leader. That'll be verses 18 through 21. And then we will, we will conclude with a displaced worship, 22 through the end. Well, let's look first at a disappointing victory. We pick up in verse one, and we remember right before chapter eight, that is the story of Gideon that we are probably most familiar with. That is his 300 men. They go in and they ransack the city, not because they have done anything, but in fact, because the Lord has done something. And Oreb and Zeb, the princes of Midian, well, they're, they're on the run. They've been captured as Gideon and the 300 men go after him. And so what is it that we see? Well, Gideon and, and Israel, these 300 men have just, they've just conquered a masterful defeat. They were way outmanned and outplanned. And yet God has done something. And you would think that as Gideon and the people are coming to continue to seek after the kings, that more people would want to be a part of this. Look at what we've done. Look at what we've seen God do. Join forces with us. Be a part of that. There should be a, a unifying or a, or a rallying cry. And yet that's not what we read, is it? When we begin chapter 8, there's a delay in the fight. Gideon is looking for help. He doesn't get it. And not only does he not get it from two groups, the first one, that is Ephraim, challenges him. They challenge him on what he's done this far. Gideon's a hero, isn't he? Isn't he a national war champion? And yet he's not received or treated anything like it. What we get with Ephraim is criticism. They criticize Gideon. Gideon, why didn't you call us before you went out? You didn't ask us what we thought about this. You didn't seek our counsel. There's a measure of arrogance, of, of pride that Ephraim is openly saying to Gideon. Dr. Dale Ralph Davis calls Ephraim a prima donna. Them thinking that they were the ones who would make such a decision. And why might they think that? Well, we're the tribe that has produced Joshua. We are an influential, powerful, strong tribe. We should be considered and consulted before things take place. We're the place of Shiloh, which is where most would say at the moment, the tabernacle is. This is where God has planted himself. People should be seeking our help and our counsel, and yet Gideon does not. Now, you can imagine what Gideon, the leader, might think, perhaps might feel. I've just won a battle, and here's Ephraim pointing the finger and giving it to him. One of the verses that our kids memorize at school, Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. It seems that's what Gideon does. That's what his questions are supposed to be suggesting. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Nothing that I have done would ever compare Ephraim with who you are and what you're like. He is calming the situation down. And then he moves on. And he goes to consult Succoth and Penuel and asks for help. 
eight are, are men. These 300, they've been fighting, but they are, in fact, exhausted. Would you help us? And you notice what he's asking. We just need some provisions. We don't need a steak dinner. We're not asking for some fancy hot meal. We're just asking for bread. The common thing that you already have and already eat. Would you please give to me and my men bread? We're tired. We are exhausted. And yet what does Succoth say? They say no. They, they don't say no like what Ephraim was doing with Gideon in a critical manner by saying, look, at, why would you do that? Why do they say no? It's not because they weren't consulted. It's because they're afraid. You, you see, Gideon, we're not sure you can win this battle. We know that you've been tackling lots of people. We're not quite certain that you'll take out Zalmunna and Ziba. Has the Lord already said that to you? Has he already given them to you? They're afraid. They're afraid that if it doesn't go well, they're, well, they don't have a very good battle plan. They're exposed to Midian. And so they do not want to help him. And so Gideon says, well, when I win, oh, and I will win, I'm going to come back and I'm going to teach you a lesson. And you, you read it, didn't you? You heard what he said, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. That's not fancy terms for saying, I'm upset with you. That's him outlining, this is what I plan to do when I come back. And then he goes to Penuel and he says, please, will you guys help? And it's the same answer. And he says, well, when I win, I'm coming back and I will bring down this tower. Now, there are mixed opinions of what's going on here. You see, the names Succoth and Penuel probably don't make a whole lot of sense to you. Who are these random people? These are fellow Israelites. And so you've got people who don't know what to do with what Gideon is saying, saying to people who would be considered a part of the covenant family, people of God, that is, another Israelite. Is Gideon saying what he's saying because you don't want to stand firm for what God is doing and what he has done? You're being a coward. Is that why Gideon is giving such a harsh charge to them of how I will treat you? Or is there something more that's driving Gideon? You know, at the moment, I don't know if you can answer that question. I think the text is, in fact, leading us in a direction that we can find out where he ultimately will end, but I don't know where he is right now. Whether or not this is, you've been a coward, or I'm driven by success, and I want you to know something of who I am. And so he moves on. It's this interesting twist. This is Gideon. He probably doesn't answer harshly to Ephraim because, well, it's Gideon. He's afraid. And he knows that Ephraim is perhaps only second to the tribe of Judah in power and influence. And so why might he not be so harsh with them? Because they are stronger than him. 
And yet here with Succoth and Penuel, it seems as though he's saying, do you not know who I am? And what an ironic statement. Because the last time he used that question, it was to the Lord. And what was he saying to the Lord? Do you not know who I am? Do not choose me. And yet here he seems to be giving this picture of, do you not know who I am, fellow man? Have you not considered my strength and my talents of what I have done? And then we can read what happens. Gideon finds them. He destroys Zeba and Zamuna. And he is exactly true to his word, isn't he? He comes back, and the text is very clear. He finds out how many there were 70, I think it was, 77 in total. And he teaches the officials of Succoth a lesson. He destroys the tower in Penuel. And in fact, it goes on to say, and he killed the men of that city. There's no real celebration of the victory. It just seems to be an utter disappointment. They win a battle, and yet there seems to be another one taking place. Well, when you pick up the narrative in verse 18, I understand it's not broken up in a new heading of any sort, but what you see is this concentration of here the battle's over, and yet then you kind of get a, another glance with well, who is Ziba and who are Zamuna? And what is it that we are learning here in 18 to 21? Well, he's dealt with these two tribes and he's giving his full attention to these two kings. And new information is coming out, that which we did not know prior to it. And there's, well, there's these two men that were murdered. They were killed. Most would say it wasn't in a battle. It was just some vicious murder. And what do we learn about these two people? They were Gideon's brothers. Gideon's family had been murdered. And he says to them, if you would have spared them, I would spare you. But because you killed them, I'm going to kill you. And perhaps it stops you for just a moment. It almost shocks you. Are you sure that's what it says? Is Gideon doing this for the honor of God? Or is this a personal revenge mission? Why are you doing this? We didn't have any text to tell us that God had sent you to do that. Why is this information coming out? And why are you making it relevant? Are you motivated by the word? Or are you motivated by hurt, pain, the loss of your own people? Again, I don't think it's quite clear yet. Verse 20 might bring some clarity, but we're not there yet. We have no reason to think that these two kings of Midian would have been spared. It's common practice, even in the biblical narrative and accounts, that the opposing the enemy, the kings of the enemy, are normally put to death. They're killed. They are a part of it. And yet what tends to be clear is what God says to do. He would say, go kill them, go put them to death. But here we get a different outline. It's not Gideon who goes to put them to death, is it? He calls his son. What is he doing? He's trying to shame these two kings. Look, there's a little boy who's stronger than you. Rise and kill him, he says. And the little boy is afraid. Now, is this a, is this a generational fear? My father's afraid of everything, and so I am. Or is this, I'm just young, 
I don't know. It could perhaps be both. But he is afraid. And so the kings of Midian, they, they taunt Gideon. And they say, you're not much of a man. You do it. And then you can read the account. He kills them. Now you could be saying to me, I'm making a little bit too much of this. But I want you to take notice of some things that you haven't been looking at. You see in Judges chapter six and seven, at all of these major turning points, do you know what you find? Gideon is interacting with the Lord. And he's asking the Lord for help, for aid. What do I do? Where do I go? How do I know? Please give me a sign. Are you sure you want to send me? You sure you want to use me? In chapter 7, verse 15, we learn that Gideon worships the Lord based on the interpretation of the dream of the enemy. But after chapter 7, verse 15, you do not see the name of God in connection with Gideon show up again, except in verse 23 here. And I'm not quite certain Gideon is using the name of God for the reasons that you might think he is. I think what you're looking at is Gideon is distancing himself even from the Lord. Where in, say, the book of James, when James would say, draw near to me and I will draw near to you, Gideon seems to be distancing himself from the Lord, not consulting, not depending, not trusting, and his heart is beginning to be exposed And how do you know that to be the case? Because when you pick up in verse 22 and to the end, you see where the worship lies. You have a displaced worship. Midian has been defeated. And the men of Israel say what to Gideon? Rule over us, Gideon. You, your son, and your grandson, And did you see what they said? For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. What do they want? They want a king. They they want a king to rule over them. They want a dynasty to be a part of this. They've already forgotten they have a king. They're asking for a king that they want to obey, but they already have a king in which they do not obey. And you can see this pattern. Isn't this the problem with when they call Saul? We want a king. Why? Because we don't want to be the called out ones. We don't want to be the separated ones. We want to be the we fit in ones. We want to look just like everybody else. So give to us a king. And then you find out what's behind it. It's because they think man has saved them. You remember in chapter 7. Do you remember why Gideon only has 300? Was it not the Lord saying, I am diminishing your external support so that you do not think you have saved you? And it has taken very short amounts of time for them to go ahead and say, but we have saved us. Look at us. Gideon, you have saved us. 
They have already forgotten that salvation is from the Lord and they have bought into the lie that salvation is in fact from man. They can save themselves. You know what's so difficult about this is sometimes what's most problematic is not our failures, but our successes. What we think that we are good at and what we think we can or perhaps have achieved. You see, in failure, sometimes we learn the lesson quite quickly. I just can't hold on to those things the way I want to. But success has a whole different temptation, doesn't it? To say, look at how much you've accomplished. Look at how good it feels. Look at how good it looks. What it, in fact, is like. We begin to tempt ourselves, don't we? We can do it. We can save ourselves. When we see a success, look at how hard I tried. Look at my good plan, my good organization. I did a great job. And we begin to forget that it is of the Lord. And here is Gideon. And you could be saying again, Danny, I think you might be giving Gideon a hard time. They told him, rule over us. And Gideon said, no. He said, the Lord is the only one who rules over you. Gideon knew to say no, didn't he? Because the title does only belong to the Lord. He did say no to the title, but he seems to say yes to the lifestyle. You know, saying the right thing and doing the right thing are different. And so Gideon says no, but his life seems to suggest otherwise. Do you see what Gideon does? He says no, but could I ask a favor? Could you provide some of your treasure? I'm not your king, but I do need a king account. I'm going to tax you just a little, not a lot, just a little. I'm not your king, but I do need a royal bank account. What else is he doing? He takes several wives. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is a biblical response, period. But you can read your Old Testament. That tends to be what? That's the habit of the kings. When they're victorious, they take wives. And Gideon takes wives. He, gosh, he has 70 children. I have enough with three. He's got 70. And he names one of them. And you learned. He had a son with a concubine. He named him Abimelech. And you thought to yourself, well, sure, Gideon, if you couldn't come up with any better name, that one works. But what does Abimelech mean? In Hebrew, it means my father is king. Now, you have some people who want to suggest and say he named him Abimelech because he was trying to say that God is your father who is king. But then you look at the pattern of Gideon's life. What about his life right now is suggesting that it is the father in heaven who is king? He is acting like a king and he is saying, no, my son Abimelech will testify to the fact that I am in fact in charge. And you could keep reading. He's not going to just stop there. What else does he do as soon as he's had his child? Or children, he makes an ephod. Now, you don't really care about that until you read Exodus 28. What is an ephod? It is a priestly 
garment. It is what the Lord gave and instructed the high priest. It was a costly garment. It had precious stones. And in fact, it had 12 precious stones. And it had these two other, most people think they're stones, Umim and Thurman. And, and they were used to kind of direct and find out what is the counsel of the Lord. And so they had these stones a part of it. And you can go that, it sounds like a fun garment. Maybe that would look nice. Is that a fun accessory? It's not so much the accessory that makes this such a big deal. It's where you found the ephod. The ephod was always in connection with the Ark of the Covenant, with the tabernacle, with where worship was to take place. And what is Gideon doing? He makes his own ephod and he sets up shop where? In his city. Orpha. And there is no biblical indication that God has said, take the tabernacle from Shiloh and put it in your city. And how do you know that's not of the Lord? Because what happens as soon as he does it? It says the people whore after it. They have failed to worship the one who's in the tabernacle and they are worshiping the things of the tabernacle. They are worshiping created things and not, in fact, the creator. Why is that so challenging? You know, we don't have priestly garments. No, this is not a priestly garment. We don't have priestly garments. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we have these weird challenges in front of us that say, I'm just not content with what God has given me. I'm not content with what God has instructed me to do or where or how. We want to develop our own practices. We want to conjure up our own suggestions of what it means. And how do we do that? Well, many people just say, well, the Holy Spirit told me this and you have no idea where that was found. Now, you in here tonight are probably going, I know, Danny, there are some people who say that, but we're reformed. We don't do that. Au contraire. I think we have our own ways of doing the very same thing. Pause for a moment and consider this question. Why is it that you always want more Bible studies? Why do you want more Bible studies, more events, more fellowship? More retreats. Sometimes we like to say, because that's where people fall in love with Jesus. We can have these contexts and people will fall more in love with Jesus. It's easier for them to seek God if we would do these different events. Is that not forsaking the means of grace? To say that What takes place on Sunday morning and evening, and even more specifically in the sacraments, that Christ himself is not sufficient for his people in worship. Now, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't have retreats. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't have Bible studies. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't have fellowship. But consider your priority. How likely are you to go to, say, a fall festival and yet not come to church that Sunday? Or to choose a Bible study throughout the week and yet not be a part of worship or come to a committee meeting or team meeting or whatever else you want to call them, but not come to 
church. It's not so much that these events are problematic, but our priorities begin to show where our worship really lies. Where do we feel most comfortable? Is it in the worship of God that should make us uncomfortable? Or is it in hiding in these other activities? Again, Dr. Davis says we are always living in this dangerous temptation to mouth humility, but to practice pride. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't the weakness of Gideon that got him in so much trouble. It was the misconception that he thought he was strong, that he, in fact, did something. Success is, well, it's not bad, but believing that you are the one who achieves it all is a problem. Judges 8 is, is a real turning point in this book. What you read in verse 28, the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. A phrase that reminds us, we've seen it before, it reminds us of the refreshment of God's people. There's, there's no enemy stealing your stuff. They're not attacking you. They're not invading you. The people of God seem at some measure to be worshiping. They have some general peace. Verse 28 is the last time in this entire book you will see that phrase, that the land had rest. We have nearly two-thirds of the book to go, and already they are without peace with God. They have forsaken God. Gideon, the judge who was tasked to lead people away from idolatry, has just led them right into it. You remember the prophet Jonah, what he says in chapter two? Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Trusting and winning a battle might actually cost you the war. Now, this is probably going to hit on a few of your hearts for just a moment. Not many, because not many of you are fans of this team. But I want to draw you back to 2013 in light of this week. There are going to be all kinds of unique football games, rivalry games, and one is called the Iron Bowl. That is Alabama and Auburn. I want you to think about the Iron Bowl in 2013. Alabama is ranked number one in the country at the time, and Auburn is number four. Only a few of you probably remember the controversial play, but it's the fourth quarter. They're tied 28-28, and a man with the ball steps out of bounds, just stepped out of bounds, You can possibly disagree with the refs, but just stepped out of bounds. Just enough time with one second to kick a 57-yard field goal to win the game. Now, maybe some of you are starting to remember this. Griffith, that's his name. He's not well-loved right now. He comes back out, and he kicks it seemingly as hard as he can. It just wasn't quite far enough. It lands into the arms of Chris Davis, who catches the ball, almost heels on the back of the end zone and runs it back for a touchdown, 109 yards, and defeats the number one ranked team in the nation. That is Alabama. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's right, because we don't quit until the game is over. That's actually not the point. You see, Auburn wins that game and they go on to face Florida State in the national championship and they lose. 
One reporter interviews Gus Malzahn and says, what happened? Listen to what Gus Malzahn says. It was so difficult to move on from that victory. It was so difficult to have moved on from what we just accomplished, beating Alabama. We tried and we tried to tell our players, you got to let it go. You got a new game. It's a new day. We tried to do it with our coaches, but we could not let go of that victory. Success had become their downfall. They could not win the championship because they were so over the moon about a previous success. Now, the point is not to do what you can to lose. The point is also not to act like you didn't succeed when you do succeed. There is a point in which we say, but who really does succeed? Do you believe that God is in control ordaining your steps and mine, and that he is in and above and all around every bit of it. That's what Deuteronomy 8 is trying to say over and over and over again. When you, my people, enter into the promised land, what is he saying over and over in Deuteronomy 8? Do not forget. Do not forget. I did this. I'm your God. I provided food. I provided clothing. I provided protection. I provided all of these things. Do not forget. And God told Gideon, you have a small army because you have a large God. Do not forget. And Gideon has utterly forgotten. And in fact, the text tells you, and so did all of the people. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. You see, friends, this table tells us what victory looks like. Every single judge has a battle in which they cannot win. They all die. But this table tells you the true and final judge, Jesus, that even death cannot defeat him, but in fact is his servant. He rules and overreigns death itself. The beauty of this table is such that Gideon, who had no right to tell people to do all these things for him, your king does, and instead he said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life a ransom for many. I didn't stay in my heavenly home. I left to a lowly estate to be with you. This table is going to tell you, I've promised myself to you, I began a good work, and I have shown you I'll do what it takes to complete it. If that's you, you don't need to worry about halftime victories. You have one who keeps you, who saves you, who, who holds you, and who's going to carry you all the way to glory because the one who didn't have to gave it all, even the shedding of his own blood that you and me might be his. If that's you tonight, this is a generous table and you should come with great joy because he gave it for you. 
that you would know what true victory is, the grace of the gospel, that I am your life and you can have it to the full if you would come to me. Let me pray for us. Our God and our Father, we thank you that you don't know anything about leaving things unfinished. You spoke and creation came into existence. You finished creation and you sat down. You rested. And then we rebelled against you and you sent your son and he powerfully reminds us he too finishes the work. That was his word on the cross. It is finished. Might we find such nourishment in the gospel this night because a victory that is applied to us was not achieved by us, but by your son. So as we prepare to come, open our hearts that we might have great affection for you and lives that in fact might reflect you. And all for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.